Botswana could have gone down the route of Somalia, but it didn't because we have this creation of jobs in cities. We have the creation of formal sector in the industrial economy, and that's pulling people out of agriculture, and they're identifying as a member of this broader ethnic group. And so I think those examples contrast with each other, and I think it's important to show that even in Africa, which is normally considered a non-industrialized continent, we have variation, and we have an important case in Botswana, which really shows how successful industrialization can be in driving uh, assimilation. are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. One of the most important factors explaining ethnic change in the modern world is industrialization. Indeed, industrialization has resulted in significant changes in the way we live and work including changes in migration patterns and social structures. As people move from rural areas to urban centers, they may find themselves interacting with others from very different cultural backgrounds, and they must therefore adapt to new social norms and customs. In a wonderful new book, my guest provides a new framework to understand the origins of modern ethnic identities. He explains how and why ethnicity changes across time, showing that by altering the basis of economic production from land to labor, industrialization makes societies more ethnically homogeneous. For example, by lowering the relative value of rural land, industrialization results in people identifying less with narrow rural identities in favor of broader identities that can help them navigate the formal urban economy. Elliot Green is a professor of development studies in the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics. His latest book is Industrialization and Assimilation, Understanding Ethnic Change in the Modern World. Elliot and I began by discussing what ethnicity means, why it is sometimes used interchangeably with race, and how identities are negotiated. We thereafter discussed industrialization and the role of the state in promoting ethnic homogenization in many parts of the world, including some of the case studies he discusses in the book from Turkey, United States, New Zealand, Somalia, Uganda, Botswana, and South Africa. I hope you enjoy listening to this recent conversation I had with Elliot Green. Elliot, it's so lovely to see you. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Finally, welcome. Thank you so much for hosting me, Dan. I appreciate it. Let's start with discussing what you mean or how we should understand the concept of ethnicity. As I see it in your work and also in the in the literature, there is this conventional understanding that ethnic groups are have something in common. They are uh, communities that share some form of common descent. So the question is, Elliot, is that it? Or is there something else to this understanding of ethnicity? And if so, what? How do you understand that concept? Yeah, that, I mean, it's a, it's a good question because the term is often misused. Basically, the way I, I think of ethnicity is, yes, along, along descent, groups that, that are defined largely through descent. Now, again, the descent can be real, and many times it is real, but it's also sometimes assumed. In other words, the people think they are of the same, uh, the, the members of the group are all descending from the same individuals. That can be assumed to some degree, and of course, it accounts for mixed marriage and inter-ethnic marriage, right, which is another big topic. But of course, over time, what happens in, in any kind of group that has based on descent is that certain cultures will evolve, right? Certain distinct features of that group will evolve over time. You know, we have a history of ethnicity that goes back not just in the last few decades or a couple centuries, but actually through the last millennia of going throughout human history, arguably. And in pre-modern times, a lot of ethnic identity was attached to certain livelihoods. Livelihoods meaning that you, you know, your ethnic group would specialize in, in certain kinds of production, right? The most obvious way to think of this, and I know you know Africa, uh, having done work in Malawi, right? This is quite common in Africa that 
certain ethnic groups are associated as uh, farmers, as agriculturalists, and certain groups are associated as pastoralists, right? So that, that kind of defines, you have a language, of course, which is attached to that ethnic group, but then you also have a livelihood, right? And, and, but those two are kind of evolved together over time as people marry within a certain group, right? So those, those come, they, they, they exist, they of course change over time, that's the whole point of the book, is describing how ethnic identities change, but they, they go often very far deep back in the past. How should we then understand the concept of race? Because that is often used, I see it interchangeably sometimes, correct me if I'm wrong, with ethnicity. And sometimes, you know, there's this understanding that a, a broad range of groups of different with different ethnicity can somehow form a racial group, but you can't have many racial groups forming one ethnic group. Right. You know, so what, what is that relationship between race and ethnicity? No, I mean that this is this is one of the things that is complicated because the word ethnicity is used in different ways in different contexts to some degree. Arguably we all, all humans basically have multiple ethnic identities. It's like a series of, of like Russian dolls. It's nested identities. Like you have a smaller, more narrow identity you know, in some cases, you might call that a clan or even a sub-clan identity. And then you move to a sort of broader identity and, and the, perhaps the broadest identity we can think of below that of being a human being is arguably race, right? The idea that we have these broad racial categories, you know, but we could probably count uh, on, on two hands, right? Yeah. That's the idea. The number of ethnic groups, you know, that we would think of in the world is far greater. But the idea is that the, we have these broad racial identities and, and the, the reason I still call it ethnic in some sort of broad sense is because, like I said, it's based on descent or at least assumed descent. The idea that everybody who is considered, quote unquote, white or quote unquote, black, you know, might derive the white people who identify as white to some degree have some European ancestry, people who are black to, have, to some degree have black ancestry from Africa. Right. So there's a, there's there's some descent based element to it. But, yeah, that's that's the way that I think we can conceptualize race as sort of the broadest possible category of ethnicity. Now, depending on the context, you know, in many Western countries, including here in the UK and in the US and elsewhere, the words ethnicity and race are often used interchangeably. And that's why it gets very confusing for certain people. And that is why I like the fact that you have a very nice, simple figure in the book, the concentric circles. So you have. Right the sub-clan as the smallest identity group or, or ethnic group, and then you could have clan, then you could have tribe, nation, and on top of everything is race. Now, one of the major arguments you make is, in a way, your critique that ethnicity is not fixed, right? That there is a, a lot of literature saying that it is, but you argue, as you just mentioned, that we have many, multiple ethnic identities, and that we actually choose to emphasize one or another given a particular context. I can relate to that myself. You know, I was born in India. I've lived all over the world. I, I'm Norwegian. And depending on the context, I may choose to highlight some part of it or many of these at the same time. So let's um, hear you tell us a little bit more about why do you think this idea of a fixed identity has been so prevalent in some parts of the literature and why is it so problematic? And why does ethnicity change over time, which I think is one of the key sort of messages in your work? First of all, to tackle why we a lot of people assume that ethnicity is, is fixed, I think there's uh, there's there's maybe two reasons. Uh, the one is that we, I think, is it uh, maybe James Layton and David Fearon have uh, used this phrase called folk folk primordialism. Folk meaning that sort of a we normally think of on a day to day basis. We uh, we mean people and academics and non academics. We sort of assume that when we talk about ethnicity, when we talk about identity, we 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 kind of assume on a day to day basis as the same, right? And for the most part, that's true. I mean, that's how we go about our lives. Is that we see somebody, we meet them, and, you know, they identify as such to us, and we identify something to them, and we kind of assume the next day that we meet them, it's going to be the same. That, that makes sense, right? I mean, for the most part... Is it because we want to simplify? We want to yes. categorize? Yes, that's exactly right. It, it, it's a natural human instinct 
to see somebody, and uh, another political scientist has written a lot about this, Henry Hale, who does a lot of work on Eastern Europe. And, and he wrote an excellent book about this, I think, 15 years ago. And that was his main argument, is that ethnicity is a way of simplifying the world around us, identifying people. You know, I identify you as a group, and you identify me as a group, and then, of course, we identify ourselves as members of groups, right? And that helps us to sort of categorize people. It's, again, it's not just ethnicity. It's that, you know, we talk about gender. We talk about sexuality. We can talk about other forms of identity. And in, in that case, we sort of, you know, see somebody, we put them into a certain category, um, and that allows us to interact with them in a certain way. So that makes sense on a day-to-day -day basis as a sort of way for us to deal with people around us, especially foreigners or, or strangers, I should say, people who we don't know, right? We sort of find a way to interact with them based on the way they sort of fit into certain categories. So that makes sense. That's a full primordial uh, understanding, the way that uh, the day-to-day -day basis, we sort of assume people don't change their identities. And when we can talk more about this later, but when, when certain cases come up, prominently where people do change their identities it often evokes a very visceral strong response and towards the end of the book i do discuss this uh in passing uh which is this book by rogers bootbaker called trans where he talks about he compares the way we have this uh, trans uh, gender identity the caitlin jenner identifying from being a mm -hmm. man to a woman changing their identity from being a man to a woman and then we have rachel dolozal an african-american or somebody who was born uh, a white American who then chose to identify as uh, African-American, sort of transracial. His, his point in that book is about how people had a very strong, visceral, negative reaction to uh, Dolezal, but did not have the same sort of visceral reaction to Jenner and why that yeah. might be. But the point is that people in general, when people change their identities, we, we can see that as, for in many contexts, very problematic for a lot of people. There's also an academic reason why I think people have assumed uh, uh, identities to be stable. And part of that is just the way that we, 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 I, I talk about this in the book. We have a, a well-known article about a quarter century ago from economics by... You mean Bill Easterly. Exactly, yes. Easterly and Levine uh, explaining Africa's growth tragedy. The basic argument is, why is Africa poor? Africa's poor because it has huge amounts of ethnic diversity. And that sparked off this sort of quarter century of literature, where it's not just uh, low growth, it might be also civil wars. It might be the lack of good public goods provision, not just in Africa, but more globally. I mean, there's literature in the U.S. as, as well on this topic. So the idea is that we have the effect of ethnic diversity on various outcomes. But if you assume that those outcomes can also influence ethnicity and ethnic diversity, then that problem problematizes that relationship and becomes complicated to assess. Again, there is a, a more recent phenomenon, I think, in the last five or ten years, just as I was writing this book, this starts to start, there's a, a little bit of a, a, a more complicated literature and more problematizing this literature, which is uh, assessing this in a much more nuanced way. But it's just, it's just beginning to come out, I think, in, in economics and other social sciences. I was actually discussing your book with my wife earlier this morning, and she's a historian. And she's been working on assimilation, integration strategies involving minorities. In her case, it is the small, the tiny Jewish minority in Norway. And one thing she mentioned to me, which I thought was super interesting, everything she says is super interesting. Uh, I have to say this, it's official. I, I yeah. admire my wife. Of course. Is how small groups or minorities, you know, they negotiate with majority society. So negotiating identity appears often to be an important strategy, that identity is relational, that you are allowed to have some sort of identity by others. It's not yeah. It's not just what you think, but what others yeah. grant you. So this then, in turn, I would imagine, has implications on our understanding of ethnicity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, and again, you're being based in Denmark. I, I'm sorry, Norway. I'm sure you're aware of Frederick Barth, the great Norwegian anthropologist. Indeed. who wrote a lot about this. Right, the idea that ethnicity is by definition relational, that you don't have a self-defined ethnic group. You only define yourselves in opposition to other groups or at the, at the boundaries. I think that was his favorite, uh, his famous book, Ethnicity and, and Boundaries. Yeah, this, this, is, this is true. This is also talking of anthropologists. This is you know, one of the phrases I think I use in passing in the book. There's two four-letter words from anthropology, which really should, should be more widely used. And those are emic and etic. Emic meaning sort of self-defined and etic being other-defined. And the idea that, you know, we define ourselves as a member of a group, right? But then to be accepted as a member of the group, other people have to define us as a member of that group as well, right? So, and this comes up, uh, again, I think it's another anthropologist, Francisco Gil White, who is Mexican, and he was talking to an indigenous 
member of an indigenous group in Mexico, and he said, how can I become a member of your group? You know, what if I want to become a member of your ethnic group? And the person, he said, looked at him as if he had celery stalks growing out of his head. I mean, it made no sense, right? The idea is you can't become a member of the group, right? You know, even if you want to, you can't join. This is the whole point is that we have to have both emic and etic understandings of, of ethnicity, right? I mean, going back to your, your previous uh, question, which I didn't actually realize I didn't fully answer, which is about, you know, the, how, how the, you know, the book explains this ethnic change, right? The idea is that we, we see as, as societies start to become industrial, as we start seeing industrialization proceed, those livelihoods that I mentioned before, the idea that certain ethnic groups specialize in certain things, that starts to change because those livelihoods are by, basically by definition pre-modern, pre-industrial, right? The idea that you specialize in certain kind of agriculture or certain kinds of uh, economic production, but it's based in a pre-modern or at least pre-industrial society. When you move into a more industrial society, and in this sense I mean um, uh, urban society with formal job creation where people are leaving the countryside, they're coming into cities, they basically start to take up positions that are unrelated to those previous livelihoods that are associated with their ethnicity. And they, they realize as they come into cities and start to work in industry and, and formal jobs that they are uh, they start to form bonds with people from, from broader groups than, than they had in the countryside. And so they start to form sort of larger identities. Uh, and so this is a process which takes place, I think, globally. That's the whole point of the book is to look at a variety of case studies from around the world and basically show that this is a, a basically universal process that took, takes place during industrialization, and it takes place at, at a time when people are basically leaving. Uh, by industrialization, in my sense, I really do focus on the idea of what it's not. What it's not is agrar agrarian, agricultural, living in the countryside, right? The process by which people leave those areas and move into cities and move into sort of formal jobs uh, in urban areas. And that, that sort of process, that sort of structural transformation is really what drives this, this process of ethnic identity change. You actually argue that, that we... As people, we choose our ethnic identity based on the kind of benefits that it brings us. So some of this could be because we perceive that by donning a different identity, we will get benefits of industrialization, the welfare state. I'm categorized as somebody else. I'm a urban resident rather than a rural resident. This is actually the, uh, an important part of how it works in China. You need to have the hukou. So without that, you don't get access to schools for your children. It becomes very difficult for rural migrants to move to big cities in China. So one thing would be how I perceive what will benefit me by you know, changing or maybe re-emphasizing some part of my, my identity. But there's also another aspect, which is how the state or other actors are facilitating this or directing me as a person to become different, to to become more a part of a homogeneous group, which is, you know, a, a larger identity. So um, let's just start first, Elliot, by talking a bit about the economic incentive. Is it just economic incentives or is it something else that makes me want to don a different hat when I move from a rural to an urban area? Yeah, of course, there are political incentives, too. And I think that's one of the things that I, I, I note in the book, that there's been a fair amount of literature from political science and sort of understanding uh, the degree to which states provide political incentives for people to identify one way or the other. Sometimes those incentives are kind of benign, and sometimes they're extremely violent, right? Yeah. So the idea that if you don't identify as such, we will come and basically kill you, right? And, and you know, I, I do identify a couple of instances of that in the book. You have the case... Um, there's many, again, many, many instances in modern societies. This is the origin of a modern genocide, the idea that you try to wipe out somebody who doesn't identify the way you want them to identify, right? One case that I talk about in the book is, uh, is Turkey, mid-20th century Turkey. And in Turkey, there was concerted effort then and to some degree even today, whereby uh, the Kurdish minority has been targeted by the Turkish government. And in the past, uh, this was particularly very violent uprising in eastern Turkey in the late 1930s, again, not entirely because of Kurdish identity, it was also a religious minority, but this particular group was targeted for very violent retribution. 
And you know, that's often what states will do. They will try to target people and create incentives to, to basically you know, put a gun to their head and say, you have to identify this way or else we're going we're gonna to kill you. And that, that's an incentive, of course. Uh, it's a very violent one, but it is an incentive. One of the problems with that, obviously, it's incredibly terrible for the people involved. It's also, you know, it's, it's, it leads to, uh, from the side of, from the perspective of the government who's trying to impose this identity, the problem is, yes, you can kill people. If you don't kill them, there's often a backlash. And that's exactly what happens. So whether it's Turkey or elsewhere, you know, you go around trying to kill people because of their identity, and they're going to resist that. And they're going to say, actually, no, I, I identify even more as a member of my group because you're trying to erase that group, right? This is the whole problem with, with, with genocide, that it's, it never really succeeds, right? You know, they, they attempt, the Holocaust didn't wipe out Jews. It, it actually made Jewish identity, if anything, even stronger. It brought about the creation of the state of Israel, right? So this is, this is an ongoing process whereby states try to impose identities, and they often fail. Yeah, so Turkey is actually a good case of the state's attempt at assimilation not being very successful. It is almost like having the opposite impact. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the reason why I also chose Turkey is because you see these two processes going on. One is this very violent attempt to impose sort of uh, military rule in the, in the southeastern part of the country. And it, either it's you know, violent suppression and, and mass murder, or it's just non-democratic, very autocratic rule, the imposition of certain laws on people without their consent, right? Various degrees of violence. But then you also have at the same time economic incentives that are generating assimilation in Turkey in a nonviolent way, right? And that's what's quite interesting. And again, this is something that people remarked upon at the time, and you can see in various other contexts as well, whereby people are incentivized to identify as a member of a, a group, in this case being Turkish, and in other contexts, you know, the people change their ethnic identity because of the incentives given to them as this process of industrialization unfolds. And I think that's interesting is to note that we have a lot of these incentives that are driving this process, the process of uh, how industrialization alters these identities has been a little bit missed, I think, in the literature. Hence why I wrote this book. We have a lot of assumption that ethnicities, when ethnic identities change, it's inherently a political process. What I'm arguing is that it can often be a very economically driven process as well. So the basic argument that you make is that industrialization encourages assimilation by changing the economic incentives, right, of holding this smaller rural identity, ethnic identity. But you could also at the same time hold broader urban identities. Then just to follow up on my previous point, Elliot, Let's say I am lucky and I benefit from industrialization. I move to a city, I get a job, I send money back home, but I actually do have a job and I'm a part of this industrialized society. What happens if I'm excluded, if I don't have access to those benefits, if I don't get a job or... I don't benefit as directly from industrialization as, as some other people. Would I then hold on to my rural identity even though I'm living in a big city? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's two major sort of the theorists which I draw from in the book, uh, which basically both say the same thing. So the first one is going back to the 19th century is Marx talking about class formation. In the 20th century, it's Ernest Gellner who's writing about the creation of national identities. They're using different language, but they're basically the same idea, that we have this sort of structural transformation, which is driving this change in the way people identify. For Marx, it's like creating these large classes of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. For, for Gellner, it's about creating these large national identities and, and nations. The reason I mention that is because Gellner, uh, more than Marx, Gellner really identifies what you were just talking about, that we have some people who are identifying as a member of this nation, and then we have some people who are not. Right. And, and we see this process whereby he talks about it's kind of like a just so story. He talks about in this book, the creation of this sort of this fake or hypothetical example that he talks about is megalomania. People identify as megalomanians as they uh, industrialization proceeds. But then there's some people who don't identify and those are Ruritanians. So we get the creation of a new Ruritanian identity and that tries to secede from the country. Gellner originally was an anthropologist who works on who worked on North Africa, but and he actually did write about Turkey. And going back to the Tur Turkish example, this in some ways does apply to what's happening in Turkey, as it does elsewhere. The cases that I talk about in the book, the idea that people who move into cities, people who take part of that industrial 
uh, process and, and move out of agriculture, they're largely assimilating into this new identity, whether it's a larger ethnic group or the, or the national group. But people who are left behind, whether because they're in an area that's left behind, right? We have industrialization is always very uneven. Or there is an element, I think it's Gellner's phrase, I think it's entropy resistant. Entropy meaning basically he's saying, you know, if there are certain physical features that are necessary to become part of this group and people don't share those features with the majority group, then they find assimilation difficult, right? And this, again, with the large literature on, on issues around black identity in the U.S., the idea that, that identifying as white is just, is just too difficult because of certain obvious physical features. And that can, that's an example of what Gellner is talking about. Now, in, in lots of contexts, that's not true. I don't think that that would apply to Turkey in the same way. We do have Kurds assimilating as, as Turks. The physical features are not so distinct, but the idea is that it was it was really the issue around uneven industrialization. So you have areas which are left behind. The problem then is that there are incentives if you come to the city and assimilate, but nothing if you stay in the countryside. You know that that could be what happened at some point in Turkey, right? Yeah. And so so that's one thing. What about the U.S.? Since you mentioned the U.S., we talk about also in your book, the case of the Native Americans, how there was this widespread, again, state-led action, like in Norway, too, with the Sami people. You know, you want to be Norwegian. Everybody has to be Norwegian. So um, stop doing the reindeer herding, you know, become like us. And in the United States, of course, there was this policy, as I understand it, of moving away from the reservations. And then when these casinos started spreading up, and reservations suddenly became very important, then th that kind of common identity did not materialize. So you ended up having the opposite effect. So in both Turkey, the United States, you also talk about New Zealand and the Maori groups, you have state-led action not necessarily having that intended um, benefit. Can you help us better understand the American and the New Zealand examples? Yeah, the reason why I chose those examples and I, I, I found them very important as part of my argument is because normally industrialization, you know, urbanization, modernization in that broad sense is kind of like a one-way street. You become more uh, urbanized and industrialized and then you don't revert, right? When I say, you know, we talk about uh, deindustrialization, I mean, in many ways, these are, these are examples, we, when we think of deindustrialization, it's actually post-industrialization, right? We think about places like Sheffield in England or Detroit in the U.S., well, so basically post-industrial societies. The idea is that still made, people are still living in cities. They don't go back to the countryside and start you know, going up to take up farming. Right? That doesn't really happen in modern societies. The reason why those cases are so important is we actually see rare examples effectively of de-urbanization, uh, de-industrialization, pardon me. The reason why I would say that is because uh, on the one hand, yes, we see in both cases, we see groups, indigenous groups, urbanizing, becoming, leaving uh, rural, the rural countryside, leaving, leaving agriculture, moving to cities. In both cases, it's really taking place after World War II. We start to see very rapid urbanization among the Maori and the Native Americans after World War II as economic opportunities open up in cities and people start to move to cities in both New Zealand and the U.S. But this reversion comes about with the, the, the deindustrialization comes about because of government policies in both cases in the late 20th century. In the U.S., it's the advent of uh, tribal casino legislation, which basically means that legally you can only up a, open up a tribal casino on tribal land. And what this, what this means is that tribal land previously largely worthless. We know the history of Native Americans, that they were corralled and forced to move on to reservations in often very poor areas in terms of poor, poor soil and, and really not very profitable areas. And so they were given areas which really couldn't hold their populations once the population started to increase, which is why they started to urbanize, because there's no opportunities in the reservations. But what, all of a sudden, these, these, these reservations, the tribal land, saw this huge increase in economic value with casinos. And all of a sudden, that meant that tribal land was now incredibly important. So being a member of a tribe became much more important than it was before. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of Native Americans really started to identify more as Native Americans per se. Right. They didn't identify necessarily according to their tribe. Some of that's a legacy of mixed marriages. But a lot of that was basically to say, I'm a Native American. We should identify as Native Americans. Together, we can actually create a powerful movement that will push for more change, positive change for, for Native peoples. This is the so-called Red Power movement that happened at the time. And 
that that reversed, effectively reversed with the advent of casino legislation. So all of a sudden, tribal identity became much more important. Native American identity became less important. And the same thing in, in, in New Zealand. New Zealand has the same process. In that case, it wasn't casinos, it was fishery rights. The idea that we have fishery rights around the coast of New Zealand, New Zealand being an island that has a, you know, very valuable fishery rights, and they were allocated, again, not to the Maori per se, but to individual tribes. They're, they're called the iwi, I-W-I. And so individual tribes started getting access to more fishery rights than other tribes, including some tribes which were inland and didn't have any, any coastline whatsoever. Some tribes have huge coastlines, like the South Island of New Zealand is, is largely covered by one, only one tribe. And so that led to a huge amount of conflict. In both cases, a lot of inter, sort of intertribal conflict and division about what does it mean to be Maori? What does it mean to be Native American? It's an ongoing debate in both cases. You know, the, do you have to be a member of a tribe to be not Maori? You know, who is, who can speak for the Maori? Is it, is it the tribal leaders or is it people living in cities? Again, in both cases, majority of the indigenous community lives in cities, right? They don't live on tribal land. So there's that ongoing tension, and I think it's really interesting. I end that chapter with an anecdote, which I think many listeners might relate to, which is going to Washington, D.C. And if you go to Washington, D.C., and you go to the Native American Museum, and you go to the African American Museum, uh, and you compare those two museums, it's very interesting. You go to the African American Museum, uh, both you know, very interesting museums, and the African American Museum was just created, I think, about five or ten years after the Native American one. And the African-American Museum tells a very coherent story about a, a, a group of people, uh, the African-Americans, right? It tells, it, it's basically a history. You walk through it and you, you see the history of the African-Americans and it's extraordinarily well done. You go to the Native American Museum, I think it's formerly called the Museum of the American Indian, and it, it's largely incoherent, at least when I went there. I, I don't think it's changed much uh, in the last few years. And the reason why it's incoherent is because basically certain tribes are given certain areas to inculcate their own story. And so there is a story told, but it's basically by tribe. Um, and of course, the urban Indians are included in that story, but not in proportion to their numbers. Again, you would imagine majority would be on urban Indians because that's where most Indians live. But that's not true. It's largely focused on tribes. It's not telling a coherent story in that sense. And I think that's interesting, is indicative of the way that Native American identity has been highly contested within the community. Let's move on to a part of the world that interests both you and me in particular, the African continent, which is the world's least industrialized and perhaps ethnically most diverse. You have several cases. Let's discuss some of these. Somalia is a great case to talk about here as to why there was so much conflict. Perhaps one reason is that there was this attempt at creating foreign sector jobs that did not work out in the 70s and 80s that you know ended up collapsed the the state collapsed and suddenly you had identities being formed more along clan lines etc so that is one exciting interesting example and then you have uganda where there's been quite a lot of interesting stuff going on in terms of land ownership so in both of these cases in Uganda and Somalia, what you actually argue is that there's a lack of structural transformation out of agriculture. From agriculture, the transformation to formal urban industrial sectors has not been successful. And that is why we see a rise in different types of conflict. So help us better understand these two cases, Elliot, and how these differ from the Botswana example, where there has been a relatively successful implementation of the strategy of a homogeneous identity. So what is it that is similar and different in these three cases, Somalia, Uganda, Botswana? I chose those cases. I, I come from studying Uganda, so that's a country which I know the best in, in Africa, but I, I chose uh, the Somalia uh, Botswana example has been done before, and I think it's one that's really interesting because in many ways they are structurally very similar societies, in both cases historically very pastoralist, and they are largely ruled and governed by a sort of majority group, the Botswana in, in, in Botswana and the Somali in Somalia. 
but have very radically divergent outcomes in the post-colonial period. The interesting thing to keep remembering is that all three countries in the mid-20th century were incredibly rural and incredibly poor. Right? So they started out from the same basis. Now, why did they diverge? I start with the I, I first present the sort of two cases of lack of industrialization, which is both Somalia and Uganda in the book. And in both cases, we see attempts, one of the key things I keep coming back to in the book is we see attempts at, at nation building and, and state action to sort of promote uh, assimilation. And that's less true in Uganda, but it's very true in Somalia. We have a, a case where uh, the government, largely uh, the president of Siad Barre, was very, very strong in promoting a common sense of identity. The biggest thing he did was really promote literacy and education. He standardized the Somali language, the standardized the Somali script, uh, very, very prominent uh, in the way that he did that. And, and, and again, I think a lot of people at the time were, were saying that this is very, very good what he was doing. But at the same time, he was promoting a common sense of identity politically. He was completely failing to develop the economy. There was a report, I think, by the World Bank in the late 70s or, or early 80s, which said that Somalia was possibly the least industrialized country in the entire world in terms of its industrial capacity. It was simply not creating any jobs in cities, formal sector jobs. It was not promoting the move out of agriculture. There wasn't a, 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 a drought, which potentially could have led to a famine. The idea was that they would create new jobs for these people, but they weren't, they weren't even urban formal sector jobs. They were basically shifting people to other parts of the country where they remained as farmers. And the state was very, very weak in its ability to promote industrialization. Uganda, same sort of story. Basically, you don't get, you don't get an industrial economy, you don't get job creation in cities. Uganda remains one of the least, least urban countries in the world today. And the outcome in both cases that we see increasing fragmentation along ethnic lines. In Somalia, the, the case is more stark. We see the country kind of falling apart along clan lines, right? The idea that you have the various clans that comprise Somalia, and that leads to the country to fragment after the 1990s. In Uganda, it's less violent and less stark, but we, what you do see is increasing fragmentation. You have this ongoing attempt to control land in the countryside, and to control land in the countryside, you can assert ethnic rights over that land, and so ethnicity remains highly politicized. I detail in the book, one example, Ugandan parliament in the, the, the appendix to the constitution lists the indigenous communities or indigenous tribes of Uganda, and the, the parliament votes to create new tribes. They, they're, they're listing more tribes on the appendix of the constitution. It was originally 56, and now it's 65, and it's ongoing debates about we should name more tribes in those lists, and so it's highly politicized in that sense. Botswana is the contrasting example. Botswana is, you know, has a, a case of one of the most prominent, most successful industries in all of Africa, which is the diamond industry. And that's actually the cover of the book is an image of the Botswana diamond industry. I was quite proud of doing that. I, I had to look through the literature on Botswana and books on Africa, and I couldn't find a single academic book that had a picture of the Botswana diamond industry on it. So I'm very happy to be the first, I think. Incredibly successful in the sense that it's driven urbanization. It's driven industrialization. We see Botswana having very high levels of economic growth for a 30-year period. It had the highest level of economic growth per capita of any country in the world, even more than China in the 60s to 90s. Same thing, urbanization. It's been the most rapid urbanization of any country in the world, I think, since the 1950s. And what does that mean? It's meant in Botswana is that we sort of see people more identifying not as members of their clans, which is where it's very similar to Somalia. Somalia has clans, a sub-ethnic identity, the, the sub-tribal identity. The same thing in, in, in Botswana, the same sort of process. It could have, Botswana could have gone down the route of Somalia, but it didn't because we have this creation of jobs in cities. We have the creation of formal sector in the industrial economy, and that's pulling people out of agriculture. People are no longer working in agriculture, and they're identifying as a member of this broader ethnic group. And so I think those those examples contrast with each other, and I think it's important to show that even in Africa, which is normally considered a non-industrialized continent, we have variation, and we have an important case in Botswana, which really shows how successful industrialization can be in driving uh, assimilation. I agree. I think the Botswana case is particularly interesting that not everything is hopeless. You know, you could create economic development, sustain democratic traditions, create this common identity. But, you know, in my view, Elliot, sometimes the problem really has to do with the benefits, who gets access to the benefits. And if, 
you have political systems, political parties winning elections based on you know, certain geographical regions, based on getting votes from certain groups. What happens is that there is the, the perception that is created is that when we come to power, it is our people based on some identity, some grouping, some some clan that will get the plump posts. And this, in some cases, not just in Africa, many other countries, many other parts of the world, you'll see it's very visible. You have people you can identify by their names, etc., where, you know, what level or what grouping in society they belong to. When this happens on a regular basis, you know, you have different political parties coming to power and saying, basically, now it is our turn to eat. Then you have a continuation of the problem. And I was thinking about Ethiopia. I wondered why you did not choose Ethiopia or, and whether you could reflect a bit on it, because I find it fascinating that Abiy Ahmed, the new prime minister, well, not so new anymore, but his idea has been to create this one Ethiopian identity that is actively resisted by everyone. And Ethiopia, for me, is a particularly interesting case because like Botswana, like many of these other countries, there's been fast economic growth. All the indicators were showing, at least at some point, it was a developmental state. And yet the feeling was that not everybody was benefiting. It was maybe a small group that was. So when Abi comes to power, the general narrative I hear is that, you know, others say, no, no, we can't now start from, you know, a tabula rasa. We have to make sure that those who unfairly benefited don't benefit as much as us now because we were discriminated. Any any thoughts on the Ethiopian case? Ethiopia is interesting because you look back, this, it's a good example of, of attempts at state-directed assimilation that have failed, right? The example is not today necessarily, but it's under Haile Selassie, who was trying to, the emperor in the mid-20th century, who after World War II, I think, was uh, after the Italian occupation, was trying to impose an Amharic identity, an Amharic ethnic identity on the majority of the population uh, by, by uh, I think it was, um, it was the only language that was allowed to be used in primary schools and also attempted to impose an orthodox Christian identity on people. And this is a state which has a huge Muslim minority, right? And in, in both cases, he failed, right? It was a clear example of failure. Not only did he fail to impose these identities, but eventually led to his overthrow. Uh, it led to, uh, uh, you know, a terrible famine and, and civil war in the 1980s. And again, this is a good example of the sort of backlash effect. It led to, in the 1990s, the creation of this new regime under an explicitly ethnic federal system. The idea that states were then to be organized along ethnic lines to deal with the Ethiopia's diversity. So it's kind of swinging from one direction, a completely 180 degree shift to the opposite kind of attitude, right? And so that's, that's been, you know, Ethiopia's sort of ethnic problems to some degree re result from this attempt, uh, largely kind of European nation building process that Haley Selassie tried to impose on the country instead of sort of allowing it to remain a sort of multi-ethnic democracy the way you've seen in other parts of Africa. And so, uh, you know, today we do see economic growth in Ethiopia. We see, uh, to some degree, some process of industrialization taking place. Now, the reason why Ethiopia looks different from Botswana is just simply the sheer size of the population, right? Botswana, you know, we're talking like 150th, a, a tiny fraction of the population of Ethiopia. And so that process of industrialization can take place relatively rapidly with a small population in, in Botswana. That's why it's such an interesting example, because it can take place kind of an extreme example. This, the, the world's fastest growth rate, uh, the world's fastest urbanization rate. Right? Trying to do that in the country, the size of Ethiopia is going to be a very long, hard process. Right? And so in other words, you would say it's still too early to save. It could, it could be a process which is taking place as we speak. Then again, it might be arrested. This is, you know, the ongoing conflicts in Ethiopia, obviously not contributing to that process of assimilation. I was going to say in passing, you, you were talking about problems of ethnic favoritism in terms of distribution of jobs yeah. and resources. The, the, the famous example is the one to the south of Ethiopia, which is Kenya. And here again, we've seen this ongoing, highly ethnicized politics in Kenya. And this is a country which has not really, again, industrialized along the scale that we're talking about, right? It's not, again, not as bad as Somalia, not as bad as Uganda. It does have a you know, functioning formal 
sector economy, but it, it still remains largely rural. The, uh, the way that ethnicity has informed politics remains still very conflictual today. So I think that, that again, that's just why Botswana remains the exception to, to large parts of Africa rather than the rural. I also think South Africa historically was a rather interesting case, which you also touch upon in your book. The few countries where I'm more aware of my identity, both my skin color or how I look like as in South Africa. And I remember, I think over a decade ago, took my kids. My wife was with me on this trip. She's white. I am of Indian origin and the kids are mixed. And there was considerable um, curiosity, so to speak, about this family that had come. And they, of course, did not know, most people, that we were from Norway. They assumed that my wife was white South African, I was Indian South African, and it wasn't that common to have these uh, mixed marriages. So let's talk a little bit about South Africa, because what is particularly interesting, as I see it in your book, Elliot, is that you had the state encouraging industrialization. It is one of the most industrialized countries on the continent, and yet it did not want assimilation. It did not want there to be the creation of this broad ethnic identity because apartheid meant you would have industrialization, economic growth, but not the creation of this homogeneous identity, right? So I think the South African case is particularly interesting. It's almost like an exception to the rule, it turns out. Yeah, I mean, this is a, the reason I mentioned it is also because we see in many contexts like Turkey or elsewhere where we see industrialization taking place, it is the, the group that people are assimilating into happens to also be the ruling group, right? And that often happens in countries where we have an ethnic majority who is also governing the state. Now, South Africa being an interesting exception to that, the, the ethnic or racial majority in that case was not the people governing. It was a minority group which was governing, the white elite. Uh, who only uh, you know represented a fraction of the country's population, so it was not in their interest to see this process taking place. And so I try to document uh, over a few pages in the book is this is a case where the government clearly did not want people to assimilate into a broader identity. Assimilation was taking place. Assimilation, in that sense, being people identifying less as a member of a certain ethnic group or tribe, right, and identifying more as a as a member of the South African nation. Uh, sorry, the sort of the broader black majority, right? In that sense, it's sort of a racial identification. Uh, and that was not something that was uh, welcomed by the leaders of the apartheid group. And so that this is hence the creation of, of separate ethnic homelands, the Batustans, where people were supposed to be separated from each other. They had certain past laws whereby they didn't want people to mix uh, across groups. And in, even in cities, there was an attempt to house people according to their tribe within the hostels where people were working in Johannesburg or Cape Town. And of course, this kind of failed. It failed in the sense that we have the rise of the ANC, and we have the rise of sort of pan-tribal, black, even multiracial organizations that resisted apartheid in the name of uh, black South Africans and the name of all South Africans. And so it's an interesting example whereby this process is still taking place, but it's resisted by the state. And again, it's, it's sort of one of, uh, one of those cases where you would say this process is of industrialization leading to assimilation is taking place despite state efforts, not because of them. When you look at the African continent today, and you think about countries where you think industrialization is taking place, where there is some benefit being or a distribution, a fair distribution of the benefits of industrialization, which countries strike you? And going forward, there are all of these ongoing debates. I've been discussing this on the show in terms of climate change, renewable energy. There's so many parallel global development debates going on. How do you see this assimilation, industrialization relationship playing out on the African continent in the years ahead, but also maybe globally? That's a good, that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the key things for Africa in terms of uh, development right now is, is the ongoing tension over, on the one hand, we sort of see a growing green economy in terms of sort of post-oil post economy. But the other tension is that we see 
as well the development of new oil resources on the continent in, in large Uganda. Part because, yes, in Uganda, exactly. In Uganda, DRC, we have gas resources, the coast of uh, Ghana and, and Tanzania and elsewhere, right? So we have that sort of tension. On the one hand, we have a sort of post-oil economy whereby potentially this industrialization can take place anywhere as long as you have the right infrastructure, which is a big if. Um, on the other hand, we have these natural resources, which are, of course, tied to certain areas where they're located, right? And this is one of the points, like, again, going all the way back to people like Gellner, the problems of uneven, uneven industrialization, yeah. right? If industrialization is even, then we sort of develop the country as a whole, and therefore we don't see those, that tension between richer areas and poorer areas. I mentioned this towards the beginning of the book, the sort of historical examples from Europe. Now, if we look at examples from Europe, where do we find examples of even industrialization? One clear example might be France, right? France, we see relatively evenly spread industrial hubs around the country, which means we don't see the development of that uneven nature of, of growth, which leads in some cases, in many places, uh, to attempts at secession or at least secessionist politics. Right? You do see those, the problems of uneven industrialization in places like Belgium or, or Britain or Spain or, or even Italy and other parts of the continent. Right. And so the concern that you have in Africa is, is, you know, can we get can we generate growth that is relatively evenly spread geographically as well as ethnically? Uh, and then that will lead to a you know, sort of a, a growing of the economy without growing tension. Or do we generate growth which is uneven? And then that uneven growth leads to increasing inequality and potentially leads to conflictual politics in those countries. And that's that's the concern you, you know, that you have. Again, the problems of natural resources is they're never, never, they're never evenly spread. And that's one of the, again, one of the lessons from Botswana is that we have, you know, for the most part, I don't really ascribe to this view of sort of leadership. Certain leaders are better than others, but I do, you know, in Botswana, we did have a very astute leader, the first president, Seretse Kama, who was able to make sure that the diamond revenues were evenly distributed across the whole country and not by tribe. You know, there, there is an alternative history, an alternative uh, universe where he did not do that, and I think that Botswana would have had a different outcome uh, if he had said, okay, the diamond revenue should be ascribed to certain tribes only, then that would have been different. But the point is that it, it generated growth for the whole state, and though everybody in Botswana was able to, to benefit from that. But that's the concern elsewhere, is that these, these natural resources are not well distributed geographically. Elliot, this was great fun to chat with you. Congratulations on a wonderful book that I really enjoyed reading, and thank you so much for coming on my show today. It's been a real pleasure, Dan. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this conversation, please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media. You can tag us on Twitter at Global Dev Pod and Dan Bannock. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.